This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Peter Gardet. Peter, how are you? I'm good, Hill. Thanks for asking. How are things uh, in Houston? They are hot and humid again, uh, and will be for a while, though I think the entire East Coast is kind of also hot and humid, right? Or, or has it cooled down in New York? Uh, we just had our first heat wave of the summer, which definitely was a reminder that summer is a real thing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's cooled down now. I'm sure it'll be back. Usually is. All right. Well, we are, are here today to discuss, as we usually do when you join, uh, climate and clean tech. Um, and I want to note that we are putting into the liner notes of the conversation on uh, SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever, uh, but but more information about the service will, will be located there for people to learn more about the work that you do, Peter, as well as the uh, email address to reach out to us directly for further conversation, and that is energysense at ihsmarket.com. Energysense spelled like the, the podcast that we are on now. And we are here today to, to discuss a piece of research that you just put out to your clients, uh, you and your team here, uh, I guess we just within the past week or so, but I know you've been meeting with investors all over the world. I think you're just back from trips to London, of course, just trips around New York. Um, so, so now that COVID is, I won't say behind us, but but it, it, people are allowed to travel, um, that, that real life conversations are happening again. But really on what seems to be kind of both the near-term and medium-term outlook for clean tech and low-carbon investment. And the thesis uh, after reviewing the report, to me, it was a real interesting idea on molecules versus electrons. And maybe just to, to set us up, if you could help to explain some of the thesis on why we're looking at it in terms of molecules versus electrons and what that means for financial sector investing, perhaps in both. Yeah, sure. I mean, so it's such an interesting time to have my title, you know, to be a person who works in climate and clean tech. I think over the last couple of years, both of those had such clear narratives around them, such a clear investment thesis, such a clear kind of conception of where the world had been, what was happening and where we were going. And the 2022 has really just thrown all of that kind of for a loop. It's not that that old story wasn't rooted in the truth. It absolutely is. And all of those fundamentals remain true. But the reasoning behind it, the investment horizons, what people put into their financial decisions around climate and clean tech has changed and changed really drastically in a really short period of time. We had this idea that we were going to go pretty smoothly. Uh, you know, I think anyone who'd been in the oil and gas sector and the energy world for a long time questioned the smoothly part of that. But there was no question we were moving from a time when we were dependent on fossil fuels for everything from uh, transportation to power generation, you know, plastics, all the rest of it, and that 
as both capital got reallocated, regulations changed, the culture shifted, we were going to move into a time when renewable energy was going to be the main source of power, electric vehicles were going to take up a larger proportion of transport, and uh, sustainable practices as they pertain to stuff like plastics was going to be part of the scene. And Clearly, all of those things are still in play, but the way we roll them out is different. So in thinking about all of this and in speaking to clients and, and every a lot of people who are out there actually doing deals, allocating money and raising capital, one of the things that struck me was how two technologies in particular had suddenly become very bankable, very seen as very financeable, and that's CCUS, carbon capture, utilization, and storage, is what the CCUS stands for, and hydrogen. And those two areas had been completely out on the technological forefront for the last few years, are seen as very much not the place you would put your money. If you were a big infrastructure fund or a bank, you would not have spent a lot of time in these areas for all that they were, you know, worked out really well on paper. So what had changed? I think it went to this fundamental insight that if you work in the oil and gas business for a long time, you realize that the way people in the business talk about it is not so much energy markets in the sense that we turn on our lights or drive our cars around or fly planes, but in in molecules that what mm -hmm. oil companies and gas companies fundamentally do is tear those out of the ground, move them around, upgrade them and then resell them. And it's in the molecule handling and in the spreads between different kinds of molecules that you actually make your money and pay back your debt and reward your investors. So thinking about that and how that fits into this new world, it occurred to me that we are really are kind of investing in an electron future, like I was talking about, you know, the kind of established electron future narrative, while still living very much in a world that's operates in a molecule mindset, which is very different. You know, just the fundamental handling, the physical handling of those two is very different. The way they play out across an economy is really different. And so that has implications for investing. So it's taking this really broad concept of these two competing technology types and then finding ways to overlay that against technology and how you would deploy capital against those technologies. And the rebirth of the molecule, if, if, if I can say that, doesn't negatively impact the trajectory for electrons, does it? I mean, it, it seems that there's an added, and Houston obviously is those two technologies, hydrogen and CCS, are the ones where Houston really seems to be banking its attention as um, an energy energy industry hotspot. And one of the things thrown around is electrify everything you can and use hydrogen for the rest. But there doesn't seem to be any fears of the market is not big enough for all of this to work. Is that, is that a safe assumption? Yeah, I mean, there are two things in what you're saying. The first is kind of we view this more as redistributing the energy transition in the sense of moving to electrons at an accelerated pace. So, you know, places where molecules have become incredibly expensive or seen as very insecure. I'm thinking mainly Europe here. like. Electrification is clearly a solution to their uh, to their problems in many ways. It's very expensive at the moment. There are, uh, you know, costs to a transition, but we often point out, you know, if the cost of electrifying the German economy is about seven hundred billion dollars, and they're currently paying two hundred and fifty billion dollars a year for Russian gas molecules, pays itself off pretty quickly. 
So in some cases, everything that's happened over the last few months has accelerated the electrification energy transition piece quite sharply. But at the same time, that changes the cost equation globally. So some places, I think it actually does slow down. As we build out across the new sectors, as electrification becomes sort of a broader industrial proposition, costs will fall. It's arguable that on the back end, having a, a crisis now that encourages a lot of investment means that overall things happen faster, but they certainly, ha certainly happen less evenly than I think we'd expected. And have you noticed, and, and you and I have been on a lot of these calls together um, over the past year or so, as these questions around hydrogen or on CCS have taken over where there was perhaps an, an original bias to batteries or, or solar, during your recent travels, did, did you notice uh, any, call it, call it geographical tendencies in the lines of questionings or the lines of interest you were getting from some of the, the, the folks in the UK or some of the folks in the uh, US that you were meeting with? I think it's in less, the, less geographical than uh, the size of capital you need to deploy. So if you need to write a really big check to make it worth your while, which in many cases, particularly at banks, they are going to prefer to work on a really large transaction because there's a lot more fees in there. There's a lot more business to be done. There's a lot more counterparties. It has the kind of complexity that suits them. If you're an infrastructure fund, like the ones we've seen that have raised you know, tens of billions of dollars in the last six months, and you need to write a billion dollar check, it's just really hard to do that in distributed renewable energy. You know, you have to build a platform to make that work. You need to engage with all kinds of regulatory counterparties and supply chain issues and stuff that, that get complicated really quickly. There are returns in that, but often there's no benchmark deal to look at. And so that can be quite difficult. So the bigger funds and the bigger banks have long wanted to be able to work with oil companies on their energy transition strategy. And now that oil companies are, you know, quote unquote, back, you know, there's a bunch of money in oil again, because oil prices being so high, there's an appetite for helping them manage the transition through CCUS, because you can deploy a lot of money there. Hydrogen is part of that story as well. If you're a, a smaller fund, or you're able to write smaller checks, or you're willing to take the long term view on building out a platform, renewables and batteries and all of the ancillary services, those are still super profitable places to be over the long term and will clearly be a great investment proposition for a lot of people 20, 30 years from now. But if you're a bank trying to make this quarter's you know, a mandate, then you probably want to do a big deal and you want to do a big deal in some place that is going to generate the kinds of fees you want. And CCUS and hydrogen certainly look like that. Do you see the, there are some big changes that, that we can talk about here, here in a minute, you know, in terms of, you know, how the, the year has begun, you know, most obviously being Russia and the, the rising rate environment that, that we're in and, and the impact to fast growth kind of startup ideas. But on the commodity prices, these oil and gas companies are now sitting on cash that they haven't seen and, you know, a real long, long time. And it is real hard for integrated companies, whether the energy business or otherwise, to see profit coming in from one place and start funding less profitable activities in another place, just in terms of managers competing for capital. Is that emerging as a concern in any of the conversations that you're having or any of the work that you're doing? 
Yeah, I, again, it's almost a matter of re reallocation, I think. So when there are two things that are happening, when oil companies that are investing in new uh, oil and gas capacity, new drilling, new exploration, all the stuff that they would ordinarily spend all of this money on, they're doing it with organic capital, organic capex, you know, earned earnings, funding it rather than borrowing the money to do it. And they can afford that just because their their profitability is so extreme at the moment. But it does also limit the scale of the capex, like the number of additional barrels you're going to bring on by funding your own growth rather than through borrowed capital is just going to be a different thing. So what do they do with this money? Largely, they're sending it back to shareholders, which you know, uh, shareholders of oil and gas companies probably deserve that after 10, 15 years of uh, impatiently waiting for that capital to come back to them. The real question for me is what they do with those increased dividends and buybacks. You know, dividends and buybacks mean that you are putting cash back into the system. And what happens to that cash is really the question. Where do you put it? Do you put it back into oil and gas companies, you're not going to lend it to them. So are you privatizing or buying into firms that might have been marginal a couple of years ago? Surely there's going to be some of that. There's going to be a lot of cash redeployed into these assets. But a fair amount of that may instead go into new funds that have a longer term perspective that may take a different approach to energy risk and may actually end up in clean tech. So whether the oil and gas companies themselves will fund new technology using this cash that they're raising, it's hard to see that because of everything you mentioned, mm -hmm. the internal corporate mechanism. They're simply not set up in most part to do this. What they can do as they return this money to, to shareholders is end up seeing that money going towards assets that they themselves might later take on. And six months ago, you did some work around the, the amount of private capital sitting on the sidelines looking for deployment. That would suggest that that pile of private capital is only getting bigger. You know, I saw a number the other day that where it's the highest amount of cash on of dry powder since, uh, proportionally speaking, since uh, 2001. So, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. That's through several several economic cycles ago. You know, the 2000s were a time for a lot of asset appreciation rather than infrastructure spending. And certainly, if I was to go back, I would probably redeploy that money a little differently. Uh, but um, I do think there's an enormous amount sitting on the sidelines, and it certainly only seems to grow. And it's clear that these a lot of that money is sitting in the kinds of time-limited funds that are going to need to deploy, because otherwise they have to return that money back to their own uh, LPs. So there's a capital allocation issue going on here. How do you spend money in this environment? And if you have trouble spending it on oil and gas because you have trouble seeing a long-term future for those assets, you want to spend it in clean tech. So if you want to spend it in clean tech, where do you spend it? And that, that question is really the question of the day. Where do you want to spend it? How do you invest it? What kind of returns can you anticipate as you deploy this capital? You know, are you entering into a space that gets really crowded? I think we've seen mm -hmm. a number of funds go into EV charging, for example, and that space has become quite crowded. There's not a lot of attractive assets or plays out there in the EV charging space right now. So 
we have an, an interesting conundrum. There's lots of money and no one is really quite sure what to do with it at the moment. And uh, that's a great space for someone like me who spends a lot of time talking to these these guys, but it has to be a challenge for them. You know, nobody wants to be someone who has to return their money to fund holders. Sure. Well, and, and so where, I mean, there, there were some some notes in, in the report that, that we're basing this conversation from about the, the role of governments um, supporting specifically hydrogen and CCS. And most often when we talk to people about clean technologies, these are some of the emerging technologies. These are the big, I would argue, more complex engineering challenges. And almost without exception, ex- without exception, the need for public finance comes into well, hydrogen works when the government backs H, Y, or Z, or same with CCS. And you've got these concepts of hubs: one being talked about in Houston, one being talked about in New York City, one being talked about, I think, around LA. But all these big engineering challenges. So, with all this private capital sitting on the sidelines, what's the role of government in all of that? Is it more? capital injection, more favor, more tax changes, or, or how should we look at that? Yeah, this is a good question. It'll depend on country by country or region by region, because different areas take different approaches to the way that they deploy capital or deploy support. So in the United States, we do everything through the tax code. And I would fully anticipate that uh, the 45Q, as we call it now, which is the tax incentive that supports CCUS in the United States. That currently is structured as $45 per ton of CCUS of carbon removed, and it doesn't have a direct pay element yet. There are proposals out there that would make it $85, and that would make it direct pay. In other words, as you remove the carbon, it would pay out rather than having to wait and go through a tax financing process, so pay directly. That somewhat simplified version of the way it would work, but fundamentally, 85Q is just a lot, a lot more generous than 45Q. And uh, I think there's a lot of talk about how that could work. And that would instantly put a lot of these projects you know, into the money on paper. We are beginning, I think, to get close to a period where we're going to see the first FIDs, the final investment decisions, around a couple of these big proposed CCUS projects. So there's one in the upper Midwest, the one in the Gulf Coast. Those, what I hear from our CCUS team, those are economically viable today, essentially, by stacking the credits that already exist. And that's LCFS, low carbon fuel standard credits, as well as the 45Q. So I think we could see a couple of them go ahead. And once a couple of them go ahead, you will see a lot of what's called fast follow projects. That first generation gets funded. Everybody wants to be second because it's a lot easier to raise money. You have a benchmark project. You have taken the operational risk somewhat off the table. So once we get two or three, we'll get five, six, and seven really quickly. It's hard to get to a point just because of the scale of these projects and the match between the carbon source and the field at the injection site. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces there, if you like. So it has to be an asset-specific decision. Uh, It's hard for me to imagine there being 100 of these projects Mm -hmm. in the next few years. It's easy to imagine there being 10 to 20. Globally or domestically? Uh, Globally. Globally. And is that that these the, the the tax regime uh, that that you do or the tax changes that you just kind of outlined is that a way for governments to support this activity without putting more capital 
and and therefore still managing the inflation concerns that government seem to be wrestling with right now? I mean, at its core, this is a, CCUS is still relatively cheap in terms of inflation additionality. It's you're spending on something that's infrastructure, you're spending on something that's labor intensive. If there's any way that governments should be spending their money, you know, from a classic economics perspective at this time, the hard infrastructure like CCUS is potentially part of that. Mm-hmm. When you're managing an inflationary environment, there are much bigger questions about uh, managing across an entire economy. You don't want to add a bunch of direct pay elements across the economy. So I think they have a bigger problem, frankly, with oil prices feeding into prices at the pump than they do with uh, controlling costs on big CCUS and hydrogen projects. I mean, that's just not going to add enough to the bottom line, whereas you're you have enough of a of an increase in energy inputs into the economy right now on a dollar per input basis that really does drive uh, an inflation across the system and that's an argument in fact for spending more money on renewables because they don't have a commodity input price for the most part you know there's an equipment price that feeds back into the commodities markets at a lower level but fundamentally, wind and sunshine are free. So, you know, that really does have a deflationary impact over time. And so that can be a counter to anything you see on the inflation side of the, the balance sheet. What's the tension between this uh, private capital sitting on the sidelines waiting for deployment and policy, which traditionally moves very slowly? Are these policy changes able to to happen quickly enough for, for much of that capital to, to get put to work? Or are we on more of an annualized basis where the policy changes on a calendar year basis or something like that? If there was a, I think what business always talks about, what capital always wants is stability in policy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's just been incredibly lacking uh, across, uh, you could say every jurisdiction except perhaps China. Which actually, I mean, you know, there are various governance issues that have been raised by people who are not me in in China, but they certainly have a stable regulatory operating environment in many ways, especially on big infrastructure projects. And I know that there are investors here who look at that as and kind of say, you know, it's too bad that that same kind of stability, at least, cannot be replicated in other jurisdictions because you need to be able to deploy capital and expect returns over 10, 20, 30, 50 years in the case of many of these assets. In the case of CCUS, where you're taking carbon, shooting it into the ground more or less, and then storing it, and expect to store it for centuries, let's call it, you're taking on a very high risk profile there, because what if it gets released, who's responsible for that? I mean, to be indemnified for that by a government would probably be helpful. So there are a lot of uh, places where government can help. I think one of the main ways they can help is simply by having a stable structure. And that's something that we've been lacking across energy systems generally. And you've seen that in the underinvestment. I mean, one of the things I point out in the report is that we've chronically, ex-China, we've chronically underinvested in power. And it's actually kind of remarkable that the economy has held up as well as it has, considering how little energy we've added into the system over the last 15 years. So one of the, uh, I guess maybe a place to, to, to wrap up, but, but one of the questions, and you and I have kind of teased this conversation before having it now, but, but we'll have it now 
I guess on record, <laughs> is, is around something I read recently about we're moving into a rising rate environment. And here it is, May 23rd. Stock markets are off, you know, some 15, 20% globally, um, just on the idea that these fast growth companies, the time value of money is changing, everything else is changing, and profitability may be delayed relative to forecasts, say, a year or two ago. The, the thing I read that was quite interesting for, from a conversational topic is that we're going into a period of high innovation rather than low innovation. And that based on the idea that when we are in a period of low rates, companies grow by buying back shares or, or give the appearance of growth through share buybacks and or taking out competition. And so it, it very much advantages to large existing incumbents or the incumbents rather than the, the startups and innovative um, ideas. And so this person's thesis was really, we're gonna see all sorts of innovation because A, the company that was buying back its own shares has to look for new revenue streams, and B, the innovator that was going to get taken out and integrated into a large company is going to survive and disrupt markets. Do you see that happening in clean tech? And might we see it before the end of this year? Might we be talking about things that, that we haven't talked about before in the way that hydrogen and CCS kind of entered the radar uh, over the past 12, 18 months? Yeah, I mean, I love this concept because it brings in so much. There's this idea that uh, every economic cycle has within it the kind of seeds of its own destruction, which is a very sort of Hegelian Marxist concept of like <laughs> phases in economic history. And uh, there is almost surely some truth to that. The longer low rates went on, the more likely they were to do some kind of damage to fundamental growth prospects. Having rates be so low for so long you know, created a, a certain kind of operating environment for a certain kind of financial engineering. You know, I I think financial engineering can be great, but in this case, it created this kind of repetitive sort of sugar high in terms of asset prices that clearly was not helpful when it came to underlying investment. You know, I talked about how underinvested the power sector has been for the past 15 years. It's very palpable that we've gotten really good at producing economic growth without the fundamental inputs of energy. But any energy intensive growth is going to require more infrastructure spending and that it, that infrastructure spending does better in a higher rates environment. So I think there's something to that. I will say that your final question about innovation and so on, you know, there's a lot of it, it, the talk about what the trade-offs are around innovation, what promotes it. It's arguable that uh, low rates environment that encourages venture capital spending has a, a good effect on innovation. But one of the things I will say is that there's a remarkable amount of technological innovation in this area right now, full stop. You know, saying why that would be or how it relates to interest rates is a little it's hard to draw the a perfect connection. But over time, uh, innovation, a lot of the innovation we're seeing, which is around things like minerals intensity and batteries, sounds really dull, but is fundamental to actually making the electric vehicle revolution work. And those kinds of innovations, which I think we're seeing a lot of and which will come to market in the next 18 months to 24 months to five years, will have a transformative effect. You know, you look at iPhones, and that's an overused example, but the batteries have gotten better and better and better. And that's made them easier and easier to deploy. It's made them easier to buy. It's made them cheaper and cheaper from a computing power to, to dollar cost. And you know, I think the same thing is happening on clean tech, where we're just seeing huge improvements. And if anything, there's this fear out there that whatever you buy today 
as a investor may be outmoded or out mm-hmm. out innovated in the next five to ten years. So if you have a wind farm today, and you expect the next generation of turbines to be you know 20, 30, 40 percent more efficient than the turbines you're putting in, you begin to get a little concerned about the the structure of your contracts and making sure that you're going to get the return you want if you're not producing as much power as as a wind farm down the road, if you like. So complicated investing environment, but as far as technological innovation goes, I think we're in a really exciting place. And I think people will look back at this time and, you know, there will be discussions about inflation returning to something more approaching a long run normal because you can't have it run an economy on negative interest rates forever. And But the, what people will remember is how quickly a lot of the clean tech innovation was happening. All right. Well, that, that sounds uh, fairly optimistic. Uh, in terms of the period of innovation. And I'm looking at my iPhone as we talk, I'm not staring at the actual screen. You can vouch for that because we're on video. But I've had my iPhone now for, I think, eight years. So I've, it, it got to a point where no longer did I need to change out of it. That that the, that, that advanced or the technology, um, I guess the pace of technological change kind of reached a point with the phones that I can be happy with what I got eight years ago. I will tell you, though, I switch out my iPhone with every new model, and every new model blows my mind. There's way more stuff <laughs> on it than I could ever use now. So, uh, You also can't fit it in your pocket. That's part of the reason I don't change out mine, is I still got one of the small ones. <laughs> All right. Well, but before we wander too far afield here, I, I will let you go, and we can wrap up the podcast. But but thank you, Peter, and, and I look forward to uh, our continuing the conversation on another one. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Thanks, so. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.